The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals participating in the show. All persons described or mentioned in the podcast should be considered innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. This podcast contains subject matters such as violence and graphic descriptions along with adult language, which may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. On April 14th, 1912, the Titanic collided with an iceberg where it later sank. But was it truly the Titanic? On tonight's very interesting case, we will be discussing that very theory. You're listening to the Mysterious Bruise Podcast, and tonight we bring you the case of the Titanic and the Olympic. Welcome to a deep, dark, dank, moist basement somewhere in the bowels of Georgia. Well, Tennessee sure did take an ass whooping Saturday. That was not what I expected. And now we got Georgia. Yeah, but y'all still scared the shit out of me. Well, I mean, hell. I don't know. Who beat Tennessee that uh, Peyton's senior year? Was it Memphis? Memphis? Mm-hmm. On like a complete fluke, like kickoff return, and he did like an amazing. He like rolled, but somehow didn't go down, and like everybody on Tennessee stopped because they thought he had went down. And he did not go down. But, yeah, Peyton would have played in the national championship. He lost to Florida, and he lost to Memphis. Never beat Florida. That was the year that I quit giving a shit about the Heisman. (laughs) Not Not that I really ever did, but that was a damn... Slap in the I face. Mean, Charles Woodson was good, man. He was, but he was no Peyton Manning. <laughs> no, he was not. But if you play offense and defense, you know, it gives you a better chance. Well, we'll see. They still have nothing but quarterbacks in the running this year, and I'm like, there's so many other good players out there. So, But anyway, all right. They didn't tune in to hear us whine about footballs. But that's what I want to whine about. <laughs> This is for our boy Cody down in South Georgia. He has been wanting this for probably years now. So this one's for you, Cody. Finally did that. Finally doing it. We finally up and did it. So as Coach alluded to in the opening, we are continuing the 10-4 hat series. And we are tackling the, not the mother of all, but it's up there. The Titanic sank, or was it really the Olympic? I think it was. Yeah. Case closed. Tune in next week. We'll see you later. Deuces. (laughs) (laughs) The Titanic and the Olympic were built 
for the White Star Line by Belfast shipbuilders Harlan and Wolf. The chairman of Harlan and Wolf was Lord Peary. Who is Lord Peary, you may ask? Well, he started with Harlan and Wolf, and in 1862, he was but a wee lass behind. Lad. Lad, come on now. I don't know. If you ever laid eyes on this boy, you might say lass. But anyway, <laughs> by. 1874, he had worked his little fingers to the bone and made partner. He had a close relationship with the Ismays who ran the White Star Line of ships. Perry also helped form the International Mercantile Marine, who was headed by the one, the only, J.P. Morgan. Very rich man. Very, very rich man. Now, the International Mercantile Marine consolidated maritime transport in the North Atlantic. In 1903, J.P. Morgan acquired the White Star Line. Now, keep in mind that Harlan and Wolfe built ships almost exclusively for the White Star Line. It was, in fact, Lord Peary who was responsible for bringing together J.P.'s money and the British engineering excellence over dinner at Peary's London residence. In 1907... Lord Peary and White Star Line's Bruce Ismay envisioned the idea of building three luxurious super limousines of the sea. <laughs> First to be built would be the Olympic. Second would be the Titanic. And finally, bringing up the rear, the Britannic. The Olympic and Titanic were to be virtually identical. This represented the White Star line's survival strategy in the highly competitive North Atlantic passenger market. It also ensured a bright future for the Harlan and Wolf shipyard as well. Not only did Lord Peary hold a large financial stake in Harlan and Wolf, but he was also a shareholder in the White Star Line and the International Mercantile Marine. Almost all passenger liners on the North Atlantic route in the early part of the 20th century were immigrant ships in very poor condition. Many were known as coffin ships, and their owners blatantly overloaded and overinsured their vessels. It was no secret that the entire industry was ripe with fraud. And on the... the j -j 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 Dang, I can't get it together. On June 14th, 1911... The Olympic made her maiden voyage under the command of Captain Edward J. Smith, Commodore of the White Star Line. Just a week later, still under the command of Captain Smith, the Olympic was involved in a stern collision with a tugboat, O.L. Hallenbeck, in New York. This, quote, air quotes, as you can tell since everybody's watching, this accident... Nearly caused the tugboat to sink. Now that's a damn. To you to get a, a tugboat to sink, that's pretty good. You gotta you gotta whack it pretty good. Well, it is a giant ship. True. Yeah. Now, just past three months later, on September twentieth, nineteen eleven, the Olympic, still under the command of one Captain Smith, was involved in yet another collision. Man, he needs to learn how to drive. I know, man. This one was precious. And it basically sealed the fate of the Olympic. Now, 
pulled in by the suction from the Olympic's ginormous propellers, the HMS Hawk, a British warship, in the Bramble Channels of Southampton, collided with the Olympic. Now, the problem here is people that witnessed the collision stated that the HMS Hawk should have yielded to the Olympic because she was in the channel, but being a military vessel, they decided that no one was beyond them pulling out in front of them, basically. Now, and that's how accidents happen. Yes, that is exactly right. Drawn towards the larger vessel and the two ships collide. Underwater, the Hawks' ram and bows not only collide with the Olympics' outer skirting, but it also penetrated (laughs) the starboard side of the Olympic, causing a triangular hole several meters high with an even larger hole below the waterline. Now, any accident involving a Royal Naval ship was investigated by the Admiralty, who, not surprisingly, in this case, found the Olympic to be at fault. Even though, like I said, the evidence, including several eyewitness accounts, suggested otherwise. As a consequence of this ruling, the White Star's insurers declined to pay out on the claim. The damage done to the Olympic was severe. Besides having holes both above and below the waterline, she also sustained numerous other damages. These included several steel frames that buckled, thousands of rivets that were popped, steel plating was dislodged over four decks, and distortion to the starboard propeller and crankshaft. When you think it can't get any worse for the Olympic, it is discovered that her keel was bent, giving the ship a pronounced list to the port side. Now, fast forward in time. When the Titanic made her maiden voyage out of Southampton, second-class passenger Lawrence Beasley, a science teacher, noted that the ship seemed to have a slight but permanent list to port. This was also noted by several other Titanic survivors. Going back to the Olympic, the great hole was patched up in Southampton by riveting steel plates below the waterline and reinforced with wooden beams above the waterline. And this work took over two weeks, suggesting just how serious that damage was. In October 1911, with these temporary repair works in place, the Olympic then limped back to the Harland and Wolf shipyard in Belfast for more permanent repairs to be done. In fact, some of those temporary repairs failed during the voyage to Belfast. The Olympic and the Titanic were virtually identical, and it is this fact which born the great conspiracy, a conspiracy of monumental proportions. The starboard propeller had to be replaced, and the crankshaft was damaged due to a crack between the arm and the shaft. The worst of it was that the keel was bent. And, like I had stated earlier, the result of that bent keel was an unfixable list to port. 
To fully repair the Olympic and make her seaworthy again, the ship would need to be cut in half. Then a new frame would need to be inserted. After all of that was accomplished, she would have to be put back together, just like Humpty Dumpty. And the job was initially estimated to take months, and when it came to the cost factor, most people at Harlan and Wolf thought it would be a colossal waste of time and money. As the conspiracy goes, it was at this point that the board at Harlan and Wolf asked if Olympic could be, quote, patched until the Titanic was ready. Several high-ranking builders stated that they could put in a bulkhead to strengthen the Olympic, but she would never pass another Board of Trade inspection. Now, in Belfast, all work on the Titanic came to a screeching halt when the Olympic made it to the yard. The initial two-week two-week, two-week time frame to patch her up wound up taking seven weeks. The original plan involved replacing steel plates along one-third of the starboard side of the Olympic. This was yet another glaring indication that the original damage was far worse than they had thought. There is a film that shows the Olympic backing out of the dock in New York. In it, you can see where she's been patched up on her starboard side. It's a huge area, and that's just the damage that you can see above the waterline. I've got a screenshot of that that we'll post to our socials. And you did can you take it. There, did you take it live? I paused it and then took it. <laughs> oh, so you weren't on on site? No, my Chrono Crash caster was broken at the time. I couldn't yeah. couldn't get a clear picture. <laughs> <laughs> Every this this fucking cat, man. <laughs> I love this. I love him, but he doesn't meow unless I unmute. <laughs> Soon as I unmute, he like you're stepping on him. I know, and he's literally just being fat next to me. <laughs> like anyway, so, so in a- if it, um, if you notice me getting visibly frustrated, <laughs> I'll know why. You'll know why. So in order to get the Olympic back to sea and earning a profit as soon as possible, the starboard propeller was replaced with the Titanic's propeller. It was stamped with the Titanic's number 401. This is a fact that conspiracy theorists consider to be the smoking gun of the swap. Now, this propeller swap would cause significant issues. We later find out that the Olympic's troubles were far from over. After leaving New York Harbor on the February... On the February... On the 24th of February, 1912, she ran over a sunken ship slash wreck off the Grand Banks and threw yet another ginormous propeller blade. And wouldn't you know it, again, it was that starboard side. Jeez. So the loss of the propeller blade shock-loaded the engine and drive shafts. This placed massive stresses on the already weakened Olympic. As she limped back to Southampton on only one engine, arriving there four days after running over the wreck on the 28th of February. By March 2nd, she was once again in the Thompson Dry Dock in Belfast, having her propeller blade replaced again. Now, this should have only taken a few hours, but 
the Olympic was actually in dry dock for five days. In Belfast, the Titanic and the Olympic traded places in the dry dock while the Olympic was under repair. If one examines the archival photographs, it is allegedly possible to see the minor differences in design that distinguish the two ships apart. On the forward part of the sea deck, Olympic was built with 16 portholes, the Titanic with 14. Mysteriously, the Titanic acquired two extra portholes between its launch and its maiden voyage. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? That's kind of that's kind of kind of funny how they can just make him windows appear. <laughs> <laughs> Now, this is yet another smoking gun for the conspiracy theorists because this would clearly point to the possibility that the two ships were switched at the time of the Titanic's launch. The windows on B-deck are clearly discernible as being evenly spaced, yet at the time of Titanic's maiden voyage, they have taken on a distinctively uneven appearance. The Olympic had been open to the public for inspection in Belfast and Liverpool. The Titanic, however, was never open to the public. Hmm. The first week in March of 1912 was the last time that the Olympic and the Titanic were together in the Belfast dry dock. The twin ships side by side on the River Lagan, and it was at this moment that the alleged decision to switch them was made. Proponents of the switch state that a conversation took place at Lord Peary's Belfast home in March of 1912 between him and Ismay from White Star Lines. Several accounts state minor differences, but the conversation allegedly went as followed. You can't be serious. Olympic and Titanic are exactly the same. No one will know we've switched them when they get back to work on Monday morning. We just swap the names. Everything else is standard white star issue. I have some boys of the yard who'll do the job for a couple of hundred pounds each and say nothing. I'll never get away with it, is what Ismay is saying. I'm sorry, it's what Perry was saying. If word of this gets out, it's either that we are going to both go down. White star line and the entire shipyard. There's got to be another way. Long, dramatic pause. There isn't. We have, a no, we have no choice. And then the fate is sealed. They decide on the swap. Now, switching. If true, evil. Yes. Evil. But just like the conversation says, switching them would have been pretty easy. And keep in mind, turn of the 20th century you don't have the press poking around you don't have tv cameras everywhere looking for a story even photography was in its infancy at the time and generally people believe what they were told to be the truth and just like they stated all the crockery the linen and so on was white star standard issue and it would have been interchangeable from ship to ship the only thing that would have had to be redone would have been the letterheads and the menus but that could have easily been changed in that time period. Only the names on the bows and the sterns of the ship, the nameplates on the lifeboats, and 48 life belts would have to be swapped over. 
But again, if you've got a small crew, this could have easily been done literally over a weekend or a long night, as the alleged conversation alluded to. And it's highly unlikely that anyone would have noticed a switch when they returned to work on Monday because no one would have been the wiser. Now, White Star often used photographs both of the exterior and the interior of the Olympic as the Titanic in their advertisements and press releases. Both ships had tiled and linoleum flooring, yet just days before Titanic's maiden voyage, chairman of the White Star Line, Mr. Ismay, ordered the Titanic's floors to be carpeted. Was this to cover Olympics worn linoleum floors? Hmm, could be, Robert, could be. The Harlan and Wolf Yard was a vast labyrinth of buildings and workshops, as well as machinery and ships in various stages of completion. Any unusual activity would hardly be noticed. The social order of the time was such that the majority of the workers would never have thought to question their bosses. They lived in a time when the majority of the population were told what to think, where to go, what to do, and when to do it. It was also a lot easier at the turn of the 20th century to bribe or even bully men into towing the company line. We see this come to fruition when the surviving crew members return to Britain, and we'll get into that later. But, just to give you a little nibble on that, there was no social security safety net for the unemployed. Companies had the power to dismiss whole families of workers, especially if one of them not, did not do as they were told. The Olympics' original sea trials conducted by the Board of Trade lasted two full days while the ship was put through its paces. Oddly enough, the Titanic sea trials were mostly a no-nonsense affair. No strenuous maneuvers were carried out, and the inspection was over in time for lunch. Of course, by now, the switch had taken place. The collision between the Olympic and the HMS Hawk was by no means Captain Smith's first incident at sea. In fact, he had one of the worst professional records of his day. Then how does he keep working? I guess he's got, make any sense. he's got some of them new pictures of somebody in a goat. <laughs> <laughs> she told me she loved me. <laughs> nah. The Commodore of the White Star Line was a show off who liked to drive his ships as though they were giant speedboats and he damaged a few in his time. You've got the three incidences involving the Olympic, which if we are buying this theory of the switch, damaged her permanently. And it must have put him in a very serious position in the eyes of his employers. He could have been summoned by Mr. J. Bruce Ismay, chairman of the White Star Line, once it became obvious that the Olympic was a write-off. If this is the case, it would have been a meeting with a very grave undertone. And could have gone something like this. Oh, come now, AJ. We've always been good to you. Kept you in brandy and cigars. Besides, it's not going to be that difficult. You've broken a few of our ships, EJ. You know, the Republic, the Germanic, the Quartic. And when the fire broke out on the Majestic and those crewmen were killed. I know, I know. You denied it ever happened. But we all know what happened, EJ. We gave you command of the Olympic, and look what a disaster that's turned out to be. And we always pay you well. It's not for me personally. It's for the company. We are in a desperate situation financially, especially after what happened to the Olympic. 
So I'm sorry to have to put it to you like this, but you do owe us. We've arranged for a small steamer from the Leland line to be in a position to take the passengers off. I have a good man lined up for the job, Captain Stanley Lord. He's done this sort of thing before and done it well. He did the job so well he received a commendation for it. So, there it is. He'll be there to lend a hand, and I'll be there, of course, along for the ride. All right, EJ says. But I want to choose my own officers. Ismay agrees. You can choose your crew. So, at the time of the Titanic's maiden voyage, Britain was in the grip of a coal strike, and no one seems to understand this. Because I didn't until we st- I started researching this. So, coal, which was the fuel for all of these passenger liners heading back and forth across the Atlantic, was in short supply. And the ships and the men were basically laid up on unemployment. Well, not unemployment, but basically with no work in Southampton. What's funny is White Star had difficulty finding firemen and greasers to work below decks on the Titanic's maiden voyage. After sailing from Belfast to Southampton, all but two of the firemen aboard the Titanic refused to sign up again in Southampton for the voyage across the Atlantic. Keep in mind, at this time, Going from Southampton to New York was the promise of a better life. And for all of these people to basically just say, no, we're good. We made the little trip from Belfast to Southampton. We ain't getting back on that. Bag of bolts. Does lend credence to the theory. So it seems that they may have known that the ship was not in perfect working order. Oh, it gets worse. It gets worth, bud. Preferring to wait for un unem- or for preferring to wait for employment on another ship, all of the men in the middle of a coal strike with so many people laid off. Like you said, what did they know? What have they seen? So shortly before Titanic sailed, Chief Officer Wild, who mysteriously lost his life three nights later, wrote a letter to his sister. In it, it said, "Quote: I still don't like this ship." End quote. Strange thing for a man to say who had just set foot on board the day before. That is, unless, of course, he realized he was actually on his old ship, the Olympic. Now, it's strange to think that the Olympic, now renamed the Titanic, was preparing to make her second maiden voyage. The ship that started out life as the Titanic and was now called the Olympic had to enter her working life with no fanfare at all. The Olympics' original maiden voyage was fully endorsed. But this time, as the Titanic set forth, she was only about half full. And again, like I had stated, this is in the middle of a coal strike when passengers are lining up to get across the Atlantic to get to America. First-class passengers on other White Star ships were only offered second-class rooms on the Titanic, even though we know that first-class cabins were available. It's almost as though the White Star line didn't want that many people on board. Now, if you're keeping up with your scorecard at home, the Titanic is now the Olympic, and it's just hanging out in Southampton. The coal strike is important for possibly another more sinister reason. 
Most other ships were desperate for coal, passengers, and cargo destined for America. And they're just sitting at the docks in Europe. Yet, you have this Leyland liner, Californian, under the command of Captain Stanley Lord, that left Port of London on April 5th, 1912, just five days before Titanic departed from Southampton. Not only did she leave fully loaded with coal, but also, minus her crew, there were no passengers. She had enough coal to get her to America, and the Californian headed off into the middle of the Atlantic at full speed with only a working crew and a cargo of woolen sweaters. Wonder why they'd need so many of them our sweaters. So over 50 mostly first-class passengers canceled their tickets on the Titanic at the last minute, many of them close friends and business associates of J.P. Morgan, and that's a whole other conspiracy theory. Oh, yeah. Now, Mr. Morgan himself... Somebody knew something. Yes, I agree 100% with that. Now, Mr. Morgan himself had canceled his ticket at the 11th hour despite having the best suite on the ship. He claimed he had fallen ill. But just two days after the sinking of the Titanic, an American reporter found one J.P. Morgan in perfect health at the French resort Ex Laboule with his mistress. Mr. Morgan also had several valuable bronze statues which he was planning to import to America taken off the Titanic an hour before she set sail. Could J.P. Morgan have had prior knowledge of the fate of the Titanic four days before the disaster? Florence Ismay, the chief officer or head honcho of the White Star Line, J. Bruce Ismay's wife, also turned down the opportunity to be on the Titanic's maiden voyage, claiming sickness. And after a miraculous recovery, Mrs. Esme instead decided to take her children on a motoring vacation. (laughs) (laughs) Something she could control. Digging your accent, man. (laughs) (laughs) I watched a lot of top I watched a lot of top gear this weekend in preparation. (laughs) To add to the bad luck that had befallen the Titanic. When she set sail from Southampton, there was a fire smoldering in the number 10 bunker. This goes back to the fireman quitting. Instead of putting it out, someone decided, eh, it's good enough. We'll just put 400 more tons of coal on top of it. Captain Smith knew of the fire, as did the ship's officers and the chief engineer. Allegedly, even the workers who attempted to put the fire out knew it was still smoldering. Not only was it smoldering at the time she set sail, but it also had been smoldering for a week and had been kept from the Board of Trade Inspector Morris Harvey Clark. Now, as the conspiracy goes, the fire in Cold Bunker Number 10 was the, quote, plan B of making sure Titanic never made it to America. Hmm. So, regardless of hitting an iceberg, she was going to sink. Well, it just so happens to have a captain that uh, probably would have sank it anyway. That's right. 
Now, remember that Captain Stanley Lord in the Californian had left the Port of London with no passengers, a full crew, a full load of coal, and just a cargo of woolen sweaters. On the evening of April 14th, the Californian came to a dead stop in the middle of an ice field. Now, allegedly, allegedly, Captain Lord decided to sleep that night fully clothed on a a five-and-a-half-foot couch in the chart room rather than in his cabin. The captain himself stood six feet tall. I don't know if you've ever tried to sleep on something that's not the same size as your body or a little bit bigger, but it sucks. He was also ordering the Californian boilerman to keep the engines fired up and on standby. You have to ask yourself, why? Was he expecting some sort of emergency that might mean a last-minute dash into the night? Hmm. That night, see, the, I didn't know. I didn't know about all this. Oh, it gets this bad. Is, this is news to me. I'm learning in real time. Oh my gosh, it's crazy! Now that night, the Titanic received six radio messages. The first three were from other ships giving the location of icebergs. The other three were from the Californian. Also, those three messages were personally addressed to Captain Smith. One could hypothesize that it was as if Captain Lord was letting Captain Smith know that the Californian was ready and waiting. And according to records, Captain Smith had delayed turning the corner on the outward southern track that ships crossing the Atlantic followed. He ordered the turn to the west 10 miles further south than the normal turning point. This maneuver would not take him away from the ice field. Instead, it would take him directly into it. Now, it it was standard practice of the day for captains to run their ships at full speed through the ice fields. Any object large enough to damage an iron steamship would be seen in plenty of time to avoid it. Other ships in the vicinity cruised on at full speed that night. So in that respect, Captain Smith was by no means drawing attention to himself. But why was the Californian stopped? Had she reached her destination and was she now waiting for a signal? Just before 11 p.m., lookouts Fred Fleet and Reginald Lee came on watch and climbed to the crow's nest. Captain Smith had retired for the night, but just like Captain Stanley Lord of the Californian, he also chose to rest fully clothed, not in his own cabin, but in the chart room behind the bridge. Hmm. There's something rotten in Denmark, sir. Certainly sounds like it. Now, First Officer Murdoch was standing on the open part of the starboard side of the bridge when he saw the iceberg about 800 yards ahead. He ordered the ship to turn to port, and for some reason, he also ordered the engines full astern. By reversing the engines, Murdoch was actually increasing the risk of colliding with the iceberg broadside. The turning circle of the Titanic was 1,218 yards, and the stopping distance was 850 yards. Titanic should have been able to avoid the iceberg with ease, so easy that those distances take into consideration a delay when orders are given. So why didn't it? Second Officer Lottoller told the inquiry 
into the sinking that before going off duty for the night, he would have easily been able to see an iceberg from a mile and a half and more likely two miles away. He also said that the icebergs would have have been just as visible from the bridge as it was from the crow's nest. Plenty of time to turn and avoid it. Now, another point of the conspiracy is that when there is an iceberg, you always turn head on to it instead of turning your weaker broadside to it. If the Titanic had rammed the iceberg head on, it would have stayed afloat. Now, Captain Smith was on the bridge in a matter of seconds, but instead of a general call to stations, his officers acted as though there wasn't an emergency. Second Officer Latoller, awakened by the sound of steam letting off, claims to have stayed in his cabin until another officer came to get him. But why? Because his cabin in the officer's quarters was just a few meters from the bridge. So for the first 40 minutes after colliding with the iceberg, it was business as usual. There was no sense of danger at all. Now, it is postulated. Well, they claimed it was unsinkable. Maybe they be- truly believed it. They're like, ah, it's fine. Maybe. But I, it, it don't make sense to ram it broadside or at an angle. Just hit that sucker head on, man. Hit that thing head on. Or better yet, don't hit the son bitch at all. I know, because basically what they're saying was it would have been an easy, gentle turn to one side or the other, and they had plenty of distance to make that turn. Now, it's postulated that the reason for this is because they expected to be rescued. It was 35 minutes before the first distress signal is sent, 35 minutes before the first radio emergency distress signal was sent, 45 minutes before starting the pumps to stop the flooding, Another 45 minutes before starting to prepare the lifeboats and a full hour and 25 minutes before the first lifeboat was launched. Only six crew members were on watch at the time Titanic struck the iceberg. First Officer Murdoch and Sixth Officer Moody drowned on the Titanic. One of the four surviving crew members, Quartermaster Alfred Oliver, was aft of the bridge at the time and saw nothing. Helmsman Robert Hitchens was hastily transferred to a job as harbor master in Cape Town. That leaves lookouts Frederick Fleet and Reginald Lee, who testified at the British inquiry, but both really never answered any questions presented to them definitively. When the Titanic came to its initial rest after sinking the iceberg, Captain Smith asked the fourth officer, Joseph Groves Boxel, to work out a position. We know for a fact from the records that the Titanic's navigator worked out a position that was 12 miles away from where they actually were. We know this because the calculations of the actual wreck. The position that Boxel gave would have put the Titanic within sight of the Californian. Was that where he thought he should have been? Inexplicably, Captain Smith ordered the Titanic to move half speed ahead for another five minutes before stopping the engines for the final time. It has been postulated that he was heading towards the ship whose lights were seen on the horizon, expecting it to be the Californian. Several survivors testified they saw a ship about five or six miles from the Titanic. 
if that's the case, the Titanic could have limped to those lights. But was Captain Smith content in assuming the ship would sail over to him because he still believed it was the Californian? Titanic survivor Miss Edith Russell said the officers told them all, don't worry, the Californian will pick everybody up. Well, how could any of the crew have known it was the Californian that they saw the lights on the horizon? It is hard to imagine anyone was dumb enough to not realize the Titanic was sinking at the time. Adding to the conspiracy is the fact that crew members were letting lifeboats go half full. Was it predetermined that the ship on the horizon would be the Californian and that she would come over to rescue everyone on board? Sure sounds like it. The problem is the ship they see on the horizon is not the Californian. It's an illegal seal fishing vessel. And when it sees the distress signal rockets from the Titanic, it kills all of its lights because they think it is a Royal Naval ship. The Californian, however, was 19 miles from where the Titanic was at. And according to this conspiracy, Mr. Captain Stanley Lord was waiting for distress rockets. At around 1 a.m., Captain Smith recognized that the rescue upon which the survival of so many depended was not going to take place. You now have lifeboats that are being let go full or over full. Passengers are beginning to lose their minds and panic. And just before 5.30 a.m., Captain Stanley Lord woke his radio operator and discovered that the Titanic had sank. Remember, Stanley Lord is the captain of the Californian. The Carpathia had already arrived and was picking up survivors. The most notable survivor that they picked up was the one and only head of White Star Line, J. Bruce Ismay, who had slipped into a lifeboat at the last minute. He would be publicly shamed for this the rest of his life. As the Carpathia steamed towards New York, Ismay was supposedly taken to the doctor's cabin and put under sedation. Despite this claim, he somehow managed to find time to send not one, not two, but the three separate telegrams to the White Star's New York officer, pleading for them to hold the Cedric in New York Harbor so that the Titanic surviving crew members could be taken straight back to Southampton. When the surviving... Oh, wow. Yeah. When the surviving crew got back to England, they naturally expected to go straight home to their loved ones to let them know they were fine. However, White Star had other plans. Instead of heading home, they were all taken into a railway shed. They were held there for nearly 24 hours before being made to sign pieces of paper. A lot of them were under the impression that they were signing the official Secrets Act. Now, Ismay, Lytoller, and the other surviving officers all came back to England on the steamship Adriatic. Now, this gave them plenty of time to get their story straight for the upcoming British inquiry into the sinking of the Titanic. Conspiracy theorists point to the fact that a fraud of such immense proportions could not have been undertaken without the collusion of the authorities, most notably the British government. 
and the collusion is said to reach as far as Prime Minister Lord Asquith. It is alleged that the Prime Minister was forced to see things in the way that would politically help his party during the next election. The rumor is that if White Star collapsed, so would Harlan and Wolf. That would result in 20,000 men losing their job. It would also allow J.P. Morgan to liquidate and seize all assets of White Star's ships to reclaim his investment. It was contrived that Lord Mercy, president of the Board of Trade, would oversee the official British inquiry into the sinking of the Titanic. Lord Mercy was no stranger to the cover-up game. I can't help it, man. I can't. <laughs> I know. You're on roll. I'm, not, I'm, I'm here for it, man. I'm not going to stop. I, I, I like He's it. poking the bear. Keep clapping, Seal. Keep clapping. <laughs> <laughs> the high casualty rate of Titanic's passengers can be traced back to outdated Board of Trade regulations. Titanic's bulkhead should have gone one deck higher. It was the Board of Trade's own regulations that allowed the Titanic to go to sea with too few lifeboats and Board of Trade inspectors signed the ship off as fit to go to sea. Due to this little nugget, no one expected the inquiry to find the Board of Trade at fault while its president presided over the proceedings of the official British inquiry. Harold Sanderson, representing Harlan and Wolf, repeatedly made the mistake of referring to the Titanic as the Olympic during the inquiry. Nice. Yeah. You, you <laughs> did all this work. We've got everything <laughs> under control, and you, you literally sabotaged the ship and killed people, <laughs> and you can't even keep your fucking story straight. I know it. That's right. Dude, when I read that, I was like, I don't think he made it home that night. No, if that was me and you, I'd be like, I would have looked at you. Used. And that's, hey, and that's, that's the thing. I was watching Top Gear, and that's when oh, uh, the older guy, the big tall guy that got in trouble for punching his producer, he looked at the younger guy and he goes, or looked at, the younger guy said something, and uh, he looks at the camera and he goes, he may be the stupidest human I've ever spoke to. <laughs> <laughs> they stupid. Yes. The whole British inquiry was a whitewash. Captain Smith would not be blamed because he was no longer alive and could not defend himself. Well, yeah, and like that's the thing. If this is all true and Captain Smith uh was in on it, how are you gonna be dumb enough to die? Well, I think he figured out when the Californian didn't come after, and supposedly there was, I want to say anywhere from like nine or 10 um, rockets, distress rockets. And then there's different colors of those distress rockets. If they're white, they mean something. If they're blue, they mean something. If they're red, they mean something else. From what I can gather in my research, Smith realized real quick that old chart boy had screwed the pooch and that was not the Californian and that this was going to be a colossal loss of life. And he would be held accountable because he had wrecked so many ships. They would have just said he would. And so he basically decided it would be easier on him to go see Davy Jones locker. 
I don't give a shit how many ships I wreck. I'm not unaliving myself. Nope, me either. I'd have been like, man, that ice word was black. Black as night. (laughs) (laughs) I would have retired. Yes. From sailing, but I would not just decide to go down with the ship. No, 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 no. I think way too much of myself. I'd have been just like Billy Zane, like fucking dressing up like a girl, trying to get on the... Yeah. Please, please help me, baby. (laughs) Now, the lookouts were not to blame. The design and construction of the Titanic was not to blame. Neither were Titanic's officers or her owners. In fact, no one was to blame except Captain Lord. And poor old Captain Lord was the patsy. He declined to defend himself, perhaps out of fear that he might inadvertently reveal his part in the conspiracy. Whenever a survivor from the Titanic referred to the mystery ship that they had seen on the horizon as an unknown ship, Lord Mersey would interject with, You mean the Californian? Furthermore, when the inquiry heard from passengers who had been aboard the Mount Temple that they'd actually seen the Titanic on the horizon were and were even close enough to hear the last two reports of her distress rockets, Lord Mulsey repeatedly interrupted them, stating, you do not give me the answers that please me, end quote. Of course, if Lord Mulsey was part of the cover-up, he would have known about Captain Lord's secret mission and of how the rescue plan failed due to the miscalculations of one chalked boy on the Titanic. But... As the captain, as me and you have just so poetically put, I would have double-checked the fact that I was not about to freeze my cojones off in the middle of the North Atlantic with icebergs around. I would have double-checked those calculations. That's all I'm saying. Oh, I'm done. That's what I... I, Yeah, I saw where you tried to breathe in that water. You're not supposed to breathe it in as you're trying to drink it, man. (laughs) That's even worse. Yeah, it is. Your sinuses and your eyes are all jacked up. Sorry. <laughs> I'm alive, though. I'm, I'm still here. <laughs> of all the fucking crazy, stupid shit I've done in my life. It would be that. That'd be my luck yep. to be taken down by Diet Coke. Yep. He died doing what he loved, choking to death on Coke. Colombian? Nope, Diet. <laughs> <laughs> titanic cost 10 million dollars to build and as a brand new ship would have been insurable for that amount and more the olympic damage beyond economic repair would have only been insurable for a much smaller amount normally white star line when they insured their ships took on part of the risk themselves and it was at first thought that lloyd's of london would only be liable for seven and a half million dollars but not so fast, Raggy. Just one week before the maiden voyage of the Titanic, which, if we are buying the conspiracy theory, was in fact the Olympic, White Star Line upped their insurance on the Titanic dramatically. Incredibly, just five days after the Titanic sank, Lloyds of London paid out $12.5 million. In 1912 money, that's like an ibbity-bidgity infinity amount of money, pretty yeah. much. 
Not only did they get their money back for the ship, they made two million. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> it's a hell of a reason. I mean Yeah. But to straight up murder people. Well it was a it turned into a comedy of errors, basically is what happened. And if the and I think what you would see is and this is where everybody throws shade on the conspiracy is that no one would have endangered that many lives. Well, they hadn't. They had set up what they thought were fail-safes. You had a, a passenger ship stationary in the water, relatively close to where Titanic would become un- inoperable. And then, just by miscalculation on the charts, you screw the pooch and you're actually 19 miles away instead of Less than five. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> yeah. I'm, this is plausible, man. Yeah, this is very plausible. A more than a century at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean did not exactly preserve the Titanic in pristine condition. There is enough left of the wreck to give us more than just an idea of what really happened. Well, right. I ain't going. Nope, <clears throat> nope, nope, and nope. Not after, not, not in us. Not in a sardine can, no. No, 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 no. Controlled by a freaking (laughs) PlayStation controller. Now, corrosion has done its due diligence, but where the original black paint of the hull has flaked away, it was, at the time, still possible to see spots of gray paint. That is the undercoat. There's only one slight problem with this gray undercoat. That gray paint was only used as an undercoat on the Olympic, not the Titanic. <clears throat> Examination of the starboard propeller reveals the number 01 stamped into the metal, but corrosion has erased what many say is clearly a four. Remember, though, the starboard propeller numbered 401 for the Titanic was put on the Olympic as part of the repairs after she collided with the HMS Hawk. Remote cameras under the control of one Dr. Robert Ballard, who found her, have examined the stern section of the ship. It shows that in addition to the lateral bulkheads that were a feature of both the Titanic and the Olympic, There is also a longitudinal bulkhead in the stern section where there was none on the original plans of either vessel. The position of this mysterious bulkhead suggests a temporary repair had been carried out to strengthen the keel, a keel perhaps damaged by the collision with one HMS Hawk. Finally, a closer look at the bow has possibly revealed the most damning evidence of all. In 1986, the French National Oceanographic Institute examined the wreck with Dr. Ballard. One of the things they checked was the name of the ship. White Star had a tradition that both ships had their names engraved into the upper bow plates in letters four feet high. Upon closer examination of the wreck and the bow plate name, one can clearly make out Titanic. The problem is, Titanic is made of iron letters which have been riveted on to the original bow plates. Now, due to corrosion and over a century at the bottom of the ocean, 
two of the letters that were riveted on have dropped off and have been lost forever to the ocean floor. Oddly enough, it is in their place that you can clearly make out the letters M and P engraved into the hole. Lookout Fred Fleet took his own life in 1965. J. Bruce Ismay resigned from the White Star Line just 12 months after the Titanic sunk. It is said that people closest to him were forbidden to utter the Titanic's name. The ship built as the Titanic, but renamed the Olympic, continued successful selling the seas for another 25 years, and in World War I, the Olympic was requisitioned as a troop transport by the British government. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is episode two of the Ten Full Hat series. We got some good feedback on our other conspiracy theories, so we're taking um, suggestions, and one of those suggestions would be a daunting task, so I'm going to... We might do a synopsis, but uh, I'm, my recommendation... We'll follow one of those suggestions. But what say you, Coach? Is she the Olympic at the bottom of Davy Jones' locker, or is the Titanic? I think I think it's possible, man. Uh, I think the way I was thinking of it being just straight up murdering innocent passengers, I don't. I hope is wrong. I hope that what the way you explain that it was a comedy of errors. I kind of have a little more hope that well, I mean, see, still, I, I'm like probably 60 <clears throat> to 70% that this is true. I'm with you. It's in the plausible range, but the way that I kind of looked at it was they thought they had, they had figured every, they had every possible scenario worked out. Yeah. What they screwed <clears throat> up with was they let, Smith pick his own crew and he picked an inexperienced chart boy that couldn't do calculations, which put them off by, like I said, some have estimated as far as 15 miles from the California. They were 19 miles from her, but she was line of sight, 15 miles. Mm. I don't know, man. What do you think? You think it? <clears throat> it's not beyond me. possibility because think about it. Like I said, it was the perfect time. You didn't have, you just barely had photographs because there's hardly any photographs of her set and sale out of Southampton. It was not a big fanfare. Okay. The big deal was the Olympic when she set sail. That was, you know, ticker tape, everything. Yeah. But you don't have anyone coming behind them. And the checks and balances were basically built in place by the already corrupt government at the time. You got the prime minister, which may or may not have been brought into the fold, but I can guarantee you if he was, you got World War One looming on the horizon. He's not about to go against and hold like basically put all these people out of work. So I don't I mean and also think about it this way. You've got a lot of power with that money with Ismay's and with JP Morgan. There's a lot of just coincidences that line up too well yeah you're right and i mean like like i said earlier man 12 million dollars 
1912 money. That is a lot of incentive. I mean, hell, 12 million in today's money is still a, a hell of an incentive. <clears throat> 1200,000 <laughs> is a lot of money right now to be honest with you. Well, I'm going to do a, let me I'm going to do an inflation calculator. So, let's see. So, If I figure out how to work it, twelve zero zero zero. Oh, I put a, a comma, an apostrophe, rather than a comma. I'm an idiot. Okay, well, 1912. <laughs> Inflation calculator only goes back to 1913, so we're just going to have to take their word for it. <sighs> well, if you figure out what I found was if you figured it up using just the bare minimum for inflation at 3.16%, that $12 million today would be $380,769,896.91. That's a hell of an incentive. Yeah. That's $380,769,896 worth of incentives. That 91 cents is the cup of coffee they all drank. (laughs) But think about it, man. Like you said, that money, they want, they were, there's no way they were going to get a million dollars for the Olympic if she's decommissioned. Yeah. They've already sunk probably twice her cost into her repairs and instead, well, I'd take that back. I would say of up to a half of her cost in repairs. And then you're looking at maybe it would have been easier basically just to build a new ship because her kill was listed. So they're going to cut their losses. They're thinking they'll get at least their money back for the Olympic, but then somehow Lloyd's of London play pays off the 12 million. They get that back plus the cost of the ship. I don't know, man. If and that's the thing, like the the Olympic supposedly was commissioned by the British Army in World War One, but this was not even on the radar as a conspiracy until I think those photographs started surfacing about the two ships. So no one would have known to look on the Olympic to see if you could have found anything that clearly stated Titanic. I don't know, man. It's something crazy. I will say that. It's one of the more plausible ones. Shots came from the grassy knoll. Bobby Kennedy wasn't killed by Sirhan Sirhan, and I think the Titanic never sank. It's starting to look that way. All right. Well, makes a whole lot of sense when you lay it all out there. In the court of public opinion, I think we have stated our case quite well, sir. 
Yeah, but now we have to move on to fix to figure out why that why that damn woman wouldn't move off the door. <laughs> oh, that's shit. the real mystery. <laughs> you couldn't move all. You couldn't scooch over just a little bit, and then she's like, "I'll never let go. I'll never let go." And then the next thing she does is just let him go. Just lets him sink. <laughs> yeah, right on down. But yeah, <clears throat> but MythBusters did prove that. I can't remember exactly what they proved, but I know they covered it to figure out if two people could stay on the door, and I don't think they could have, if I recall correctly. She was from money, was she not, in this story? Huh? She came from money in the story, what didn't she? Oh, yeah. She's rich. Yeah. All right, so recommendation time, and this, again, comes from our Mysterious Brews general chat on Facebook. If you're not a member of that, we tell you all the time you should be just for the memes. But Cody has turned on most everyone there to a podcast that I have gotten just in the weeds on. And the guy does such a great job. He's got another one that I'll probably listen to after this one. But it's the MLK tapes. And it goes through all of the conspiracy behind MLK's assassination. I have made it through episode one, and I can tell you that when Tenderfoot Media puts together a podcast with iHeartRadio, the production is just a smidge above ours. Uh, We got one good shout-out. I had sent it to young coach over the weekend. We got thrown up there with some podcast royalty. One, I don't want to mess it up. Hooray for Kate128 on Instagram said she had bought the um, Western United States and Canada 411 book from Dave Paulitis. And she said, next, some true crime to mix it up a little. I strongly recommend the podcast Necronomapod and Mysterious Brews to learn a little more about this phenomenon. I'm hooked. So, of course, since she tagged us, I responded, thank you. It is an honor to be named with such high royalty and then named all the boys from Necronomapod. <laughs> well, if she's getting into 411, I personally recommend Aaron Hedges that we have covered. I don't remember the number, but I think that that's where we peaked. I think that was the high water mark of at least me. You continue to get better. <laughs> And I continue to get just slightly more phased out. No, Coach, you're doing well, sir. Your reactions of what the people tune in for. That's true. I have a small but integral. 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 Well, you got anything else? You're right. Don't want to either. There's many a times if you wasn't on the other side, I'd be like, you know what? I'm done with this whole shooting match. I have sat behind this compu- a computer too long today. I'm not sitting behind it again. But you keep the home fires burning. <laughs> I love on. that song. My daddy probably has all of his LPs. Dude, my my record collection is getting out of control. Unhealthy? Oh, it's it's definitely unhealthy. 
I wanted to get a blues traveler live and acoustic. They wanted $9 for shipping or anything over $50. You got free shipping. Guess how much the LP is? I don't know. $40. $49.88. And they would not give you free shipping? Are you shitting yeah. me? They got any stickers you could get thrown in for a couple of bucks? I, I got so mad I didn't even. I was like, really? It, it literally told me, add 12 cents to your cart. Like, really? I'd have been on the phone with someone. I didn't buy it. I would have I would have written a stunningly worded email. I'll tell you what, like it was a random record website, which if you were into vinyls, like the market is cornered by Amazon. Like one hundred percent. You know why? Because if you buy the vinyl from Amazon, you get the MP3s automatically. Like you don't even, like before they even ship, you've got access to the music. And if you're a collector like I am, you don't have to open the record. That's true. And you still get the music. Yep. No one can compete with Amazon when it comes like to something like that. Well, you got anything else? Words of wisdom for them out there? No, I don't. Deuces.